Welcome to Practical Christian Living. Peter said, wash my hands and my head, Lord. And Jesus said, I don't need to wash your hands and your head because you're already clean. If I wash your feet, that's all I need. And it was an example to us that as we walk through this world, we sin and we blow it. We rub too close to the world. We need to come back to Jesus periodically and say, forgive me. That's what he was saying to Jesus. Lord, forgive me. Have you been sidetracked by the things of this world? Yes, sure, we all get sidetracked and need to consistently come back to Jesus to be washed, cleansed, and forgiven. Hopefully, as we grow closer and closer to Christ, we get sidetracked less and less as we develop a hunger for righteousness and learn to keep our eyes on Jesus, the only one who satisfies and provides our every need. We are in our series, Jesus Appointments, here on Practical Christian Living, as we are digging into the very precious and purposeful appointment Jesus had with his disciples in the upper room the last night he would be with them. With John 13, 18 through 30, here's Robert Furrow. So we're in the middle of our appointment series, encounters that Jesus has with different individuals. And at the Last Supper, after giving communion, the first communion, and after washing the disciples' feet, he then turns to a, to a prophetic topic of his betrayer. The Old Testament had said that the Messiah would have someone who would betray him. Judas fulfills at least three Old Testament passages. And Jesus said, there is going to be a betrayer who must fulfill Scripture, but woe to the one who does it. And he said of Judas Iscariot that it would have been better had he never been born. And one of the questions that we want to ask ourselves is, was he predestined to do this? How was God judging him when it was foretold that he was going to be the betrayer? Now, before we get into those details, let's talk a little bit about Judas. Let's just learn a little bit about him. First of all, his Hebrew name was Judah. Okay, and it was a very common name because it was one of the names of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Judah. We're familiar with that because Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. He was the fourth son of Leah and Jacob, and he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It was the largest of the tribes of Israel eventually. They became the largest of the tribes, and there were many people named Judah. Today, people don't name their kids Judas unless they have a Catholic background. If you're Catholic, you're going to run into Judas because of St. Jude, right? You're going to St. Judas. You're going to run into that. But other than that, evangelicals don't name their kids Judas ever. It'd be like naming your kid Adolf. You're just not going to do it. Adolf may have been a good name at one point, but it's not a good name now. And we don't name our kids Judas, but his name was Judah. And it can send connection to Jerusalem. And Iscariot, he's the son of Simon, but he's not known as the son of Simon. He's known as Ish. Cariot or Iscariot. Some say, and, and this is really funny, some say he was part of a secret sect, Sakari, and that's why they called him Iscariot, as a Sakari, and they were assassins. Somebody told me that there's a, a Spanish group connected to that, or assassins word, I don't that's close to it. I didn't know that. But um, it's not why they called him Judas Iscariot, because they didn't say Judas, the secret assassin. That's not what they were saying, all right? That wasn't Judas. Ish in Hebrew is man, and Kariot is the name of a village close to Jerusalem. So Judah, or Judas Iscariot, Judas the man from Kariot. 
it's just, there's a lot of Judas. And so it's showing him as one Judah compared to another one. What Judah are you talking about? There was even another one of the disciples, the 12, Judas the Zealot. We'll talk about Judas the Zealot at some other point. But how do you identify between Judas the Zealot and this Judas? Because this is the one from, the man from Cariot, okay? The thing about that is, is that Cariot is a village near Jerusalem. Every one of the other 11 disciples are from the Galilee. The Galilee is the backwaters. Peter's accent gave him away. Remember when he denied Jesus? Somebody said, you're one of the disciples. He said, no, I'm not. And they go, oh, your accent gives you away. Judas would have not have had that accent. Judas was also would have been being from Jerusalem. People were more educated. They were known to be more educated. It'd be like someone being from Silicon Valley today. We would meet them. We would think, well, you're from Silicon Valley. You must be more educated. That's the way it was for Jerusalem compared to Galilee. We also know that he was and held a leadership role among the disciples. This is something we don't often think about because he's always listed last. Simon Peter is listed first. Judas Iscariot is listed last. And we say, so be it, he needs to be last. But he was a leader. He held the money box. He was the treasurer. He was the one that Jesus entrusted with the money. He was the one that Jesus told, go and make arrangements. This is a leadership position. We know that he held some influence over the disciples. Because when Mary, the sister of Martha, broke the alabaster flask of very expensive perfume and anointed the feet of Jesus the last week of his life for his death, Judas said, why wasn't that sold and given to the poor? And we know from the other gospels that the other disciples said, yeah, why wasn't that given to the poor? They fell in line behind Judas. And Jesus looked at Judas and said, leave her alone. What she's done, she's done for my death. I always find it interesting that we might side with Judas in that argument, by the way. If someone were to come in here and break a very expensive thing of oil or perfume that was worth $100,000, what are you doing? Did you know how many people we could reach with that? Do you know how many hungry people we could feed? We would probably side with Judas, but Jesus rebuked him. And Judas left that meeting and he went and he met with the leaders of the high priest and he haggled for a price to betray Jesus in a private place. They didn't want to arrest him in a public place. So Judas said, I can give you a private place he will be so you don't have to arrest him with crowds around. Give me 30 pieces of silver. They haggled over the price. I don't know that he said, give me 30. That's what they settled on. And that was foretold in the Old Testament. 30 pieces of silver was the princely price that was set for me. It's such an inexpensive price for the Son of Man to be betrayed. The horrible betrayal for that. Which means that at this Last Supper that we're about to turn to, Judas had in his possession those 30 pieces of silver. He had already bargained to betray Jesus. And Jesus gave him the cup to drink of the New Covenant. And Jesus sat down and washed his feet. I like what Greg Laurie says. Greg Laurie says, I'd have broke his feet. I wouldn't have washed his feet. Jesus washed his feet knowing the whole time that Judas was going to betray him. We also learn that he had a leadership role, but he didn't do well with it. He stole from the money box. He was a thief. People always want to defend Judas, but we need to know that Judas had character problems. I mean, he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Do we need any more? But on top of that, he was a thief and he would steal from the money box. Jesus entrusted him with the money box and he stole from him and he never outed Judas. He never said to Judas, hey, Judas, give us an accounting for the money that's in the money box. He didn't give any accounting to Judas. But he would steal from the money that was in there. And so we know he had problems, which helps us to understand something. 
And that is that one of the motives of Judas was for money. He wanted the 30 pieces of silver. He was stealing from the money box. And small compromises will lead to greater compromises. When we have small compromises in our lives, when we say, I don't need to repent from this. You know, I just took a little bit. It's okay. I, I didn't even sell them for a big price. I didn't take 30,000 pieces of silver. I took 30 pieces of silver. And those, this small compromise of stealing from the money box led to the betrayal of Jesus eventually. And that led to something that was incredibly, incredibly horrible. And so after washing their feet, Jesus got up. And remember that during the time of washing their feet, Peter said, wash my hands and my head, Lord. And Jesus said, I don't need to wash your hands and your head because you're already clean. If I wash your feet, that's all I need. And it was an example to us that as we walk through this world, we sin and we blow it. We rub too close to the world. We need to come back to Jesus periodically and say, forgive me. That's what he was saying to Jesus. Lord, forgive me. And he said, you are clean, but not all of you. And it says that he said because of Judas Iscariot. You're clean, but you're not all clean. Judas wasn't genuine. He wasn't sincere. He didn't have a right relationship with God. And so now after washing their feet, he bounces off of that statement. You are not all clean. And that's why he says what he says in our text now, which comes right after the washing of the feet in verse 18. He says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I'm not saying that you're all not clean. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And this is one of the Old Testament passages that were fulfilled by Judas, that he sat at the table of Jesus and that he ate bread from his table. And again, if he fulfilled scripture and it was foretold of them and there had to be someone who would do this, why would God keep Judas responsible for that? And again, we'll talk about that here in just a moment. But it, but it is good for us to see that he's at the table with Jesus and he betrays him. And this is a type of an Old Testament character who was a friend of David. And David had a son who tried to take over the kingdom named Absalom. Absalom, the Bible says, was beautiful. Very rarely. I don't know that it ever says of any other man in the Bible that he was beautiful. But it doesn't say that rarely of women. It says that Sarah was beautiful. It says Esther was beautiful. But it says that Absalom was beautiful. He must have been a beautiful guy. When they cut his hair, it was seven pounds of hair. He was like Fabio, but, but better. The better Fabio, Absalom. And Absalom stood outside of the gate when people would come in and say, my father's busy. Why don't you let me judge between you? And so he won the hearts of Israel. And he tried to take his dad out. And Ahithophel sided with Absalom. And when Absalom got killed and his dad was being reinstated, David was being reinstated as king over Israel, Ahithophel realized, I'm done. And he took a rope and he hung himself. One of the few suicides in the Bible. And Judas, who ate bread at the table of Jesus and betrayed him, killed himself, hung himself. And so did Ahithophel. The second thing that we can learn about his motives is that he tried to look clean, but he wasn't. You are clean, but not all of you. And we can, if we're pretending, if we're here looking spiritual, well, God knows you're not. Also remember that God chose Judas. Jesus chose him. Early on in the book of, of John, I think it's John 6, 70, which is a long chapter. He says, didn't I choose the 12 of you? And one of you is the devil. He didn't mean the, you know, villain of the Bible, the devil. The word devil means accuser. And Satan has the name the devil as accuser, but he was saying, one of you is an accuser. One of you is a betrayer. One of you isn't genuine. One of you isn't real. 
And this brings us to a point that, that God draws people to be saved. You can't come unto him without being drawn by God. The Bible says in, in John 6, that no one comes to the Son unless the Father first draws him. So we know that salvation is God's idea and he chooses you. You haven't chosen me, I've chosen you. But once he chooses you, once he draws you in, you have to choose him. You have to believe. Whosoever will, let him come. Whoever believes in me will not perish but have eternal life. And there are those today who say that you have no part in salvation. That God either chooses you and you're lost or you're lost and you can't be chosen. Irresistible grace and limited atonement, which I could not disagree with more. I'm not saying that people, that this is Reformed theology, this is extreme Calvinism, okay? Or, or Calvinism in general, we could say. I don't have a problem with Calvinists. I don't have a problem with Reformed theology. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are doing the work of the gospel. This is just an area that I disagree with them on. I don't think they're horrible people. I'm not going to claim they're not saved. Even though some of them will claim that we're not saved because we don't believe in Calvinism. I'd like to know where that's at in the Bible. Can you find that for me? If you don't believe we're all predestined, then you're not saved. See, I believe that we are predestined, but I don't believe my every move is, to be, is predestined. You don't know right now whether I'm going to go right or left, but God does. And I'm predestined right now to go right or left. Oh, I tried to go right, but I was predestined to go left. What am I going to do? No, when the Bible says that we are predestined, it says we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And that God chose us before the, the foundations of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, that we would be predestined in him, a royal generation, a holy priesthood, and all of those other things. But the, the predestination is connected to God's foreknowledge. Romans 8, 29. Whom God foreknew, he also predestined. It's simply saying that God knows everything. And, I, and everybody's going to agree with that. Every Reformed theology guy, every lapsetarian, there's a word for you, look it up. It's extreme Calvinism, which is what lapsetarianism is. Every one of them believe that God has foreknowledge. But here's what they say. But God doesn't use his foreknowledge when choosing people. He just takes two vessels and goes, burn heaven. He doesn't use his foreknowledge. Tell me, why would God set his foreknowledge aside when he's choosing people? Because they also believe in total depravity, which I don't. I believe that we are totally depraved, don't get me wrong. But I don't believe in total depravity as Calvinism teaches it which means that you cannot receive Jesus. You don't even have it in you to receive him. So you're either chosen or you're rejected. And that teaches that some of you guys here are rejected by God and you can't be saved. Irresistible grace. Some of you guys here are saved and you can't be lost. Limited atonement. I disagree with all of that. Again, I'm not saying that they're, they're bad people. We believe in the cross. We believe in the resurrection. They believe people have to confess Jesus, that if you're chosen, you're going to believe in Jesus. And if you're not chosen, you're not going to believe in him. We believe in that. And in Romans chapter 9, where it says, who are you to speak against God? If God chooses one vessel for destruction and another vessel for salvation, who are you to speak against God? They always like to use that, they like to say that to me. Who are you to speak against God if God decides to choose and reject one person or another? But don't you see in context, he's saying the person who is rejected and who will go to hell is the one who doesn't believe. The person who receives eternity is the person who believes. Remember in context, this is really profound. Romans chapter 9 comes before Romans chapter 10. Deep, right? What's Romans chapter 10? If you believe and confess, you will be saved. And so to my Calvinist brothers and sisters in Christ that I have no animosity for, and I don't even want to argue with you, all right? I'll, I'll share with you what you believe and I believe, okay? I have no problem with that. 
But, but I would say to you, who are you to speak against God? If God says, I want to give salvation to people who choose to believe me, who are you to say that can't happen? Who are you to say what vessels God would choose for honor or dishonor? God has chosen the vessels for honor for those who would believe in him. And God has chosen for dishonor those who do not believe in him. And so God, through his foreknowledge, knew that you would, you would follow him. So before the foundations of the world, he predestined your life that you would be conformed to the image of his son. God predestines. And so Judas made decisions. And God knew what decisions he would make. And so he wrote it what the betrayer would be like. If Judas was not going to betray him, we would read something different. And so Judas is still responsible. It's like if you record a football game. You come back to watch it. Everything on that football game has already been done. Every pass, every play, it's been done. Somebody knows every one of them. But those guys on the field still had free will to do every play that they could do. The coach still could call any play that he wanted to, even though it's all done. It's set in stone. It's not going to change. That coach still had free will when he called it. Amen. So Judas still had free will, and that's why he's responsible. And God will never be unjust for condemning you. God knows whether or not you would receive him. And you are not condemned because of your actions. You are not condemned because of sin. You're condemned because you don't receive Jesus and find forgiveness from your sin. Yes, sin condemns us, but you reject that which can forgive you. So I don't have time to go much deeper into that. But as to the question, was Judas predestined to betray Jesus? Well, yes, but he had free will. <laughs> yes, he was predestined because he, he was going to do it. But he had his free will and he could have not done it. And I think Jesus kept, gave him every chance. He gave him every chance, washing his feet, giving him communion, that he would not do that. And so he says, verse 19, Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe me. He says, I'm going to tell you about a betrayer so that when it happens, you're going to believe me. This is prophecy for the sake of Christians. And this is important for us. Prophecy is not necessarily for the sake of non-believers. I've seen people saved because of prophecy, but rarely. Most often people get saved because God touches their heart and draws them in. But prophecy is very powerful to you and me. When we read a prophecy in the Old Testament, like Daniel chapter 9, and we go, wow, this was the, the, the time of the Messiah was foretold in the Old Testament. From the command of Artaxerxes to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until Messiah would be 483 years, we know when that command was, and when we put it together, we hit the Messiah, really at the end of his ministry, powerful. But not for non-believers. Non-believers, they go, eh, they don't even care that much about the Bible. You and I do, and, and it's for us. So he says, I'm giving you this because I want you guys to know. He wanted them to have something that they would know. And so he says to them in verse 20, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me, he who receives me, receives him who sent me. Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us, this delight and salt of the world, I'm with you. Wherever you go, I'm with you. And whoever receives what you say receives me. And those who receive you receive me. So Jesus is with us everywhere that we go. And he just wants his disciples to know that. So then in verse 21, he returns back to the betrayer. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. It troubled him that one of the ones that he would choose, he loved Judas and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. I mean, these are the 12 guys they know. 
they didn't know that Judas was the bad guy. When Jesus said, Behold, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, they didn't all go, It's Judas, we all know that. He's the problem guy. I, I love that each one of them said, the Bible tells us in both Matthew and Mark, Is it me, Lord? They went around the table, Is it me, Lord? I've got to be honest with you, as I, as I read about Judas being chosen by God and yet not choosing God, knowing that we could be drawn by God and not respond to that drawing, or maybe we could pretend to respond to it, that I found myself praying this last week, Lord, I don't want to be a Judas. Like the disciples, I, am I a Judas? Am I not genuinely, sincerely following you? Do I look good but not really following you? And I think that's healthy for every one of us, just like it was for the disciples. I don't think it was an unhealthy thing for them to, to lean over to Jesus and say, is it me, Lord? I, I think it's a healthy thing. But the interesting thing is, when you go back and read it, especially in Matthew, Judas says, everybody else says, Lord, is it me? But Judas says, is it I, Rabbi? He doesn't use the word Lord. That's interesting to me. He says, teacher. And when he kisses him on the cheek and betrays him, he says, teacher, and kisses him. I, I wonder if, if it became evident that Jesus was never his Lord. He was his teacher. He was his rabbi. But he was never his Lord. The other disciples said, Lord, is it me? Maybe there's something to that. Is Jesus just your teacher? Are you just learning about Christianity? Or are you, do you really have a relationship with Jesus? And so then in verse 23, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples. Now, the New King James and the King James Bibles take this section and makes it sound weird, okay? But if you read it in the NIV or the ESV, it makes it a lot more explainable what's happening here. They were not sitting at a table like we sit at a table. They were reclining at a table low to the ground. This is the way they ate. And they reclined on their left side, everybody, and you used your right hand to eat the different things that were on the table. And it was a U-shaped table, usually for a group of people this side. And you had a place of honor on your right and on your left. Judas was on his left and John was on his right. John is the youngest of the disciples. Jesus had to go to John and go, I want to give you the position of honor. And go to Judas, I want to give you the position of honor. Again, reaching out to him in love. And so when it says that he was in his bosom, it doesn't mean, and you see the picture, Leonardo da Vinci, right, where he's leaning over on Jesus. That's not what was happening. They were all reclining around and in front of Jesus was John as he was sitting and reclining and eating and behind him was Judas. So he would have to turn around and say something specifically to Judas, but John just had to lean back and ask him. That's what's happening. So when it says that he was in his bosom, it just means he was sitting right in front of him. That's what it means. That's what the word is. It sounds weird in this, but that's what it is. And then it says, then Simon Peter therefore motioned and asked him who it was who he spoke. So Simon Peter motions to John ask him because John's right next to him Jesus is here John's here and so it says then leaning back on Jesus's breast again the NIV makes it clear he just leans back towards Jesus and he says who is it he's the only one at the table that can do that Judas could from the other side Judas could go who is it John could go who is it and so he leans back and he says Lord who is it and Jesus answered to whom I give the piece of bread and have dipped it and having given the bread, he dipped it, then, uh, and he gave it to Judas Iscariot, or the son of Simon. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. 
We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.